Hello and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you listening for the first time, this podcast is a new project created by the American Bar Association section of dispute resolution, and I am one of three hosts having a conversation with members of the DR community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Rekha Ringachari. I'm the executive director of the New York International Arbitration Center, or NIAC. And prior to that, I worked with the American Arbitration Association and its international arm, the International Center for Dispute Resolution, as a case counsel and director. I'm also currently co-chair of the Young Professionals Committee of the section. This week in resolutions, we're talking with Susan Guthrie, discussing online dispute resolution with a focus on mediation, tips on starting your own mediation practice, and the use of technology to develop your practice. Susan is an online mediation expert, founder and principal of a leading family law mediation practice in the US. She has 30 years of experience as both an attorney and mediator, and is also very active in the ABA as the DR section's executive committee uh, on the committee, also part of the section membership and co-chair of the mediation committee. And on that note, I'm gonna do a brief plug if Susan will allow me uh, for a program that Susan is co-chairing the 16th Advanced Mediation Institute. It's an interactive two-day course running November 15th and 16th at the South Texas College of Law in Houston, Texas. Uh, we'll discuss more on this and about the ABA uh, briefly. But first, let me welcome our guest. Good morning, Susan, and thanks so much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to have the opportunity to catch up with you. Thank you, Rekha. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here, and, and thank you for having me on. Marvelous. So we're going to jump right in. Um, Susan, how did you first get started in your practice in dispute resolution? You know, I think like many of um, our colleagues, I started out as a family law litigator and really hit that point uh, probably about 20 years in, maybe a little earlier than that, where I started to hit burnout phase. Um, you know, divorce uh, litigation can be very high stress. And I just started to hit um, a point where it was difficult for me, but I was also noticing that that approach, the litigation approach, wasn't getting the best result for clients in most cases because it was um, really inflaming a conflict rather than helping to resolve it. So um, as I left my uh, firm and went out on my own, I also made at that time a switch over to a more non-adversarially focused practice um, and have never looked back. I haven't set foot in a courtroom in, I think about four or five years and hope to never have to do so again. For sure. Um, inflaming conflict, you know, I think that's a very interesting thing. And sort of from that to jump to this idea of online dispute resolution, online mediation, I think it's really a nuance that you run your practice fully online. And so can you tell us, you know, for those novices that may be listening in and myself included, you know, how do you build an online mediation practice? How do you even get there in the first place to know and understand the platforms you're using? 
Well, I have to say, so for me, it was completely by necessity. I had been a family law attorney in Connecticut and New York for over 25 years, and then suddenly moved clear across the country to California. So I went from a place where I knew everyone and everyone knew me, and I had a very established practice to going where I wasn't even licensed to practice. I had to take the bar again, and I don't want to talk about that experience, but um, the California bar is no joke. Um, thankfully, I passed, but while I was you know, establishing a practice in California, I was still getting all the referrals and all the client outreach from Connecticut, wanted to still work with people in a state where I was licensed and known, and I knew the law and had a practice. So I just started winging it. Um, and I'm not going to suggest that to people because I made a number of mistakes as I started to go online. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons why now I train other mediators in how to implement an online uh, platform into their practice to conduct mediations so that they can learn from the, they can benefit from my mistakes. Um, but the number one thing that I noted was that clients loved it. Um, it really addressed some of the pain points of family mediation specifically. Um, so much of family mediation, at least in the way that uh, my practice is, a uh, you know, it runs, the people are in the same room, we are, you know, working in joint sessions, and it can be very uncomfortable. So clients loved the ability to see each other, but not necessarily have to be in the same room. And certainly no one has ever complained about not having to sit in traffic, leave work, um, have to get a babysitter and do all those things. So clients loved it. I found that I loved it. And so when I moved from California to Chicago now, I didn't even open an office here. I just decided to completely stay with the online platform. Mm -hmm. And I love it. Um, and again, clients love it. I work right now with clients both, you know, in Connecticut, in California, across the country, and actually around the world. So let's describe actually a bit of what online mediation really is. You know, how do you, are there platforms available that allow you to caucus separately with one client and another, and then you put them together in your role, even as mediator, in addition to being counsel, right? Because you, you wear several hats here. Yeah, well, so I'm not ever representing the parties, but I am their, their mediator. So I use the platform Zoom. Um, I've worked with uh, several different ones, tried them all out, and I have found that Zoom is the easiest one to implement, at least for me, um, and it's the one that I train people on for online mediations, for conducting mediations online, because everything that you can do in an in-person mediation, you can do in some fashion through the Zoom platform. And that includes caucusing, having breakout rooms where the parties are, say, with their counsel separately. Um, so if you're doing you know, a back and forth shuttle uh, diplomacy sort of thing, they can just always constantly be in separate rooms. I can use a whiteboard, I can share documents, and actually some of these things actually even work better online um, because, for example, when there's a document that you're reviewing with the parties, or if you're drafting, say, the agreement that you, the parties have reached, 
everyone is looking at the same screen, looking at the document, looking at what it is that you're talking about, rather than being around a table where you're trying to reach over and tell someone, oh, look, it's the second paragraph down that we're talking about. Um, and as I'm making changes, as we're modifying the agreement language, everyone sees me typing right on the screen. So um, every event, everything that you can do other than touch the other part, one of the parties, which I try not to do in my mediations anyway, right. um, and certainly I don't want them to touch each other. So um, I, everything can be done in the online platform. So you get all of the benefits of the convenience. Um, uh, just a quick note is my overhead is about a hundred dollars a month between my zoom membership and some of the other um, platforms that I need to use such as you know um, DocuSign and Dropbox and things like that um, but under a hundred dollars I have no rent I have no you know need for outside expenses um, so it's reduced that for me clients love it um, and I found that although there are certain things you do need to ethically take into consideration um, and practically take into consideration, those things can be handled with client education and with mediator education. So that's again why I do that training, just so that everyone, when they want to start, they're ready to go and feel ready and prepared and are able to prepare the clients for a, a seamless process. Sure. So from moving out to California, you know, opening this practice that you have, um, if somebody asked you, what were things that you didn't realize in becoming a small business owner, if you had known as, as we switch sometimes from being at a firm to opening your own shop, and, and it can be, even be sometimes, you know, um, the little things, it's often the little things, I would say, right, where you usually outsource. So can you tell us a little bit about things that you were surprised you were doing that you hadn't maybe thought about before you opened your own practice? Yeah, there, there were so many things as I made that transition um, that it was a little shocking. So I did it in two stages. I first left my large firm um, and sort of pick, I was running the matrimonial division in that firm. So I kind of just picked up my little practice that was self-contained and opened up my own separate boutique firm. But I had had a managing partner, we had an office manager, we had all the nice staff at the larger firm, and then suddenly it was me and my office manager slash receptionist slash legal assistant slash paralegal um, who were doing everything. And you know, just the shock of some of the expense of doing things and what things cost. You know, one of the things that I found most shocking was the cost of a copy machine that yeah. did the scanning. I mean, it was, you know, a $12,000 expense if I wanted to buy it or, or lease it. So one of the things that I quickly learned, and I talk to colleagues who are looking to branch out on their own all the time about this, so people can feel free to reach out to me, but having a good understanding of what the expense is going to be before you make the jump so that you know you have enough money set aside and you have operating expenses set aside for six months or whatever your comfort level is at least so that you can get up and running. Um, I was lucky because I had an existing practice. So the client rainmaking, at least when I opened my own firm in Connecticut, wasn't an issue. Um, but when I went to California, it certainly was because now nobody knew me. So marketing also became an issue and 
you know, there are so many different ways to do that these days and they are constantly evolving and changing. You know, back when I started my firm, which was only eight years ago, social media didn't really play that large a role. And now I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook constantly. Now that's because of some of the other things I'm doing as well. But, you know, those have become sources, at least for someone like me, who's reaching out to people who are getting divorced as potential clients. Those have all become ways to, um, to source clients. Um, and so something that I have to stay on top of, and those can have expenses associated with them as well. So having a good idea, sitting down with someone who understands what goes into setting up your own practice, especially if it's brick and mortar is vitally important. Um, and then also, you know, we have so much tech available to us these days that we are not taking advantage of lawyers, especially, um, and professionals tend to do things the way they've always done them and be resistant to change in many cases. Um, so one of the things I had to learn how to do, and now I'm very thankful I've done it, is get on top of current um, availability of tech, but also staying on top of what's coming down the pipeline. Yeah, and we're gonna get back to that conversation on tech um, later in the program and also about social media because I think a lot of people don't know how they can platform themselves, right? So building the brand. I want to talk briefly about, you know, um, for those that are tuning in, um, divorce in a better way, please give it a Google. Um, that's Susan's company. Um, and mindfulness, I know, plays a very large role in your practice. So can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, especially being lawyers, um, sometimes we forget um, how important, not only that word is, but um, the emotion surrounding it. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about because, you know, having been a divorce professional for 30 years, the number one thing I can say is that even normally sane people go slightly or very insane during the time of their divorce. And, you know, there's nothing surprising in that. It is an extremely emotional time for people. Um, these are not positive emotions, these are, you know, anger, fear hurt, sadness, um, all of those things come into play. The problem is that during the period of the divorce, when those emotions are at their highest, they don't make people reasonable. And it's time for people to be making some very important decisions about their future, about their finances, and even more importantly, often about their children. Um, and where they're going to live and how they're going to co-parent. And so we have instituted in two ways a mindfulness track into our online mediation, divorce mediation for our clients to help them have the tools to manage those difficult emotions so that hopefully when they make decisions, they're making them from a reasonable and reasoned place. So we have worked with mindfulness professionals to incorporate mindfulness directly in our process. So as an example, one of the first things we do with a couple when we start their divorce mediation is intention setting. What is their intention and what, are, what intentions do they want to set for the actual mediation process? And that's actually been a very wonderful tool because as the emotions derail them during the course of the mediation, it's a great 
way to get them back on track is to take them back to that intention. And often in their intention setting, they find that they have things in common about what they want out of the process. Um, they want what's in their children's best interest. They want to make sure that they're as financially secure as both of them can be. They may want to maintain the marital residence for the children's benefit. Um, and that's all starts them off with agreements um, and it helps the mediators uh, know, what, you know what's in the client's minds for where they wanna go. And then we also offer um, mindfulness sessions with our mindfulness practitioners outside of the mediation so that they can work on their tools. So it's been a really successful integration into our practice. And um, it's another thing that clients seem to be really drawn to. I encourage practitioners to consider it. Um, we also, you know, because for all of us, it can be a very stressful situation to be in the midst of conflict day in and day out. Um, so mindfulness actually helps us to help our clients. Sure. And you know, of course, family law being its own, I think, special category, but whether you're practicing in family law or you're practicing in business to business commercial, um, this idea of goal setting um, and intention, be it in our practice or our personal lives, because they bleed into each other, I, I think is a very thoughtful one. Um, so moving slightly aside, you know, Susan, you wear a lot of hats and I really want to commend you. That's why it's, it's really delightful you could join us today. And so what we often talk about is how do you stay active and engaged in the law? We do that in our practice and you've described it to us again, divorce in a better way for those tuning in. Um, but, but what else, right? And so at the ABA, uh, we're always looking to get more folks involved you're very involved um, and you wear a lot of hats even within the ABA, right? On the executive committee for membership, um, for the mediation committee. And so how did, how did you first get involved in the ABA? And then as a secondary question, um, how did you um, sort of get involved in the leadership? Yes, so it's, you know, I think um, for a number of years, I was a member of the ABA and would do online webinars or, you know, read the magazines that came out. But I was so busy in my day-to-day -day practice, this is back when I was with a traditional law firm, uh, I didn't actually participate much. And then um, as I've gone out into a mediation practice and a non-adversarial practice, the very first thing that helped me the most when I was switching over from litigation to mediation was finding a community of mediators. In Connecticut, that was the Connecticut Council for Non-Adversarial Divorce. And um, in California, I started um, with the DR section of the ABA. And I just started reaching out. Um, I actually, I think they put out a call for people to help with the Mediation Committee's Just Resolutions edition. And I raised my hand virtually by email and loved being involved in that and found very quickly that there are a number of opportunities for people that want to be involved. And for me, the more I get involved, the more I want to be involved because I have met wonderful people, wonderful colleagues, um, and have had some wonderful opportunities that I had not had in my prior practice. Um, I, I've had opportunities to present, to write and be published um, in ABA publications and events. 
Um, and I just uh, continue to make myself available to help with things. And that seems to be well received because I have been, now I am the, um, uh, the membership chair. So I encourage anyone who's considering membership in the DR section to reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, and then I am one of the co-chairs of the mediation committee. And um, we have so many wonderful events and colleagues in that, but we are also always looking for help there. We have some subcommittee chairmanships available if anyone um, would like to get involved. So again, please reach out to me. Um, and you know, I really think that all it takes is go to a meeting, um, show up. We do online Zoom meetings, for example, for the mediation committee come to one of the meetings on Zoom and meet colleagues and you're going to find that there are many, many ways to get involved. And the more you get involved, I think you'll be like me, the more you're going to want to get involved. Sure, okay, well, great. I'm curious, <clears throat> this year's Mediation Institute, right? Um, it's always interesting to see how topics and titles of these big programs are chosen. So the Mediation Institute's title this year is Mediation Do's and Don'ts as viewed through the lenses of parties, advocates, and mediators. How did we come up with that topic? Well, so it, it really is derived from the ABA study that was done a few years ago that reviewed um, different studies that had been done by different organizations, AAA among them, that had studied the seven mediator techniques and what I'll call the efficacy of those techniques. Did they help? Did they hurt or were they sort of neutral on helping the parties get to resolution? And so what we've done is through that ABA study, which that really pulled together a number of other, the results of another, a number of other studies, we have identified those seven techniques such as dealing with emotions, um, directive action, um, caucusing, different ones. And then we have looked to see what has been identified as helpful, not helpful, and neutral. So we've broken down three of the sessions for the Mediation Institute around those. We have an amazing faculty um, that is presenting on those seven topics in those three plenaries. And then we actually have added in some you know, some other uh, presentations that I think are going to be of great interest to people. One thing I want to note is many people who are litigators currently have been reaching out to me to see if this would be an appropriate event for them. They're thinking about seguing over to an ADR practice, um, but they're worried that this might be an event that's only for experienced mediators. And I do just want to point out, this is an excellent event for anyone who is thinking of seguing from litigation over to ADR or litigators who represent clients or advocate for clients in mediation, because we are going to have a young lawyers breakout um, sessions in these uh, after each of the plenaries. And um, we are covering these skills, you know, really from a perspective of identifying the skills, how to best do them and what doesn't work. So I think it's going to be a very effective institute for not just mediators, advanced or not, but also litigators um, and people in that space. 
that's a really um, a nice point to make because I've also gotten some queries from the young professionals. And so as a good reiteration, sometimes with programs, you know, we feel that it's not the appropriate forum. And who do you get to ask that question to to figure out if it's the right forum, even if it's not, you know, your fellow litigators, for example, is it just going to be all mediators? And I think as a note, you know, we all need to push ourselves to go to sometimes the programs that don't seem like they're the perfect match. So we meet the other kinds of people that will affect our practice. Absolutely. And, and the faculty alone, um, for people who are thinking of transitioning over to an ADR practice or for advocates to clients in uh, mediation, we have a number of advocates on the panels um, and on the faculty. And we have some judges and other individuals like myself who have segued over from a litigation practice to an ADR practice. So, you know, just the wealth of knowledge of, you know, this is the type of event you can, you're going to meet everybody. This is a more intimate event. I think we're going to have about a hundred people. Um, that's, that's a, you know, we keep it smaller so that we have the ability for everybody to really get to know everyone else, really reach out and, and make those connections to the faculty and the other attendees. So it's, I have, this will be my third year attending and I am one of the co-chairs of the event this year and we're very excited about it. Great. So what I also want to talk about today is, you know, we're doing a podcast. We have the luxury, Susan does her own um, podcast. I'm happy to report to this audience. Um, Susan um, regularly records. It's an iTunes podcast, Breaking Free, a modern divorce podcast. They have 2.1 million listeners to date. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> how, did you, how did you even conceive of the idea to launch a podcast? You know, I had been thinking about it and then uh, launching one. And then I met my co-host um, just about a year and a half ago. Um, she's in California, Rebecca Zong. She's another former family law litigator. And um, we, she, she had been thinking about the same thing. So she asked me if I'd like to co-host one with her. And we really were just, we were two people who listened to podcasts and we thought it would be fun. Um, and it is. I highly encourage it just from that perspective. I always tell people, divorce litigation, divorce, not fun. Doing a podcast is fun. Um, and we've met amazing people and had some wonderful opportunities. Um, and it's been incredibly successful, which we didn't anticipate, but that has led to sponsors and advertisers. So we actually make money and now we are being paid in some instances to make personal appearances at events. So um, what started out as just a little side thing to, to have a fun and, and share knowledge that we've both gleaned over the years has turned into um, a regular, what I'll call side gig. Um, and, and we love doing it. So I'm actually going to be launching a new podcast called Divorce and Beyond, um, which is going to focus on the new trends in divorce, uh, which include things like tech and innovations and, you know, where divorce is going, because just like all areas of law, I think um, the process is evolving. There's a lot of new information out there. And I, as I mentioned earlier in this uh, interview, I, I find that all really fascinating and, and has been usually unusually helpful to me. So I want to start bringing that to uh, the, the public as well. You know, we often hear that um, we're in a content overload, content deluge, right? How do you 
know what you should be listening to because there's so much? How do you know and how do you make time for the things you should read? And so to that sort of trajectory, um, how do you push your content, the podcast, out there? How do you share it? And this sort of goes into, I think, even our discussion of social media and use there with and promoting your brand. How do you make sure people know that Susan Guthrie is not just um, an expert mediator, uh, but also somebody who has all of these colors and, and can do a lot of things? Yeah, and, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. For the most part, um, it has been through social media that we have um, put the podcast out there. And um, I went from being a person who had an Instagram account so that I could stalk my stepchildren and know what they were doing to <laughs> like most parents um, to being someone who posts two or three times a day on Instagram about the podcast, about different things, you know, some of these personal appearances that we're do I'm doing or um, other uh, events and outside things that I'm doing as well as things that I do within the ABA um, and my practice. And that now keeping in mind the, the people that I'm reaching out to are people going through divorce. Um, so those are, you know, the people who are scrolling through Instagram or Facebook, um, not as much through LinkedIn. Um, I find LinkedIn super helpful when I'm doing things for the ABA and want to get out to colleagues or when I'm talking about learn to mediate online, you know, I put things there and I get a, I usually get a very good response. So part of it is identifying which social media best suits the end user you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. um, but then you need to be consistent. You need to be interesting. You need to know what works. A lot of people these days, you know, I didn't even know that there are social media managers out there. That's a job where people just all day long take your pictures that you send to them or your, the, whatever you're doing and they post it for you and make it interesting. Um, I don't do that. I do my own at the moment, but I'm thinking about it because it takes up so much time. Um, I had my stepdaughter, she's 21 and, and very uh, agile on social media. And she has done the social media feed for some of the events I've been at. And it's very successful in reaching out to people. So um, I've had to learn new things in a, in a very short period of time. Um, and that's had a lot to do with our success, we think. Sure. Well, and I guess as another point, right, being active on social media, whichever platform is best suited for your end user, as you said, is also another job, right? And so that's why, as you said, people outsource it, but it's really a thing that you need to do and be dedicated to on a regular basis or you won't maintain your followers. Um, and so to those tuning in, um, I think the pushing of content uh, be it LinkedIn, be it Instagram, be it any other platform. Um, it's really something if you decide to do it, you have to do it and you have to do it consistently, which Susan does, um, to be able to maintain um, readership, viewership, um, and then get the kind of feedback you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your your goal is that you are top of mind when the need arises for what you do. So whether it be, you know, reaching out to litigators to let them know that you're available to be an ADR professional for them, or as in my case, you know, reaching out to those who are thinking about getting a divorce, 
um, or who are in the midst of a divorce um, or who want to get information and listen to a podcast about divorce, you know, you want to be top of mind for them. And so you need to be top of the scroll onward scrolling list of posts. So you can't just post once a week or once a month and expect that you're going to stay up there. Um, I know that you post um, quite frequently on um, and, and very well and expertly on LinkedIn. Um, and it, it, you know, it's just really either a job or really just a part of the job. Right. You know, we were talking earlier about establishing your own business. This is now a part of that business. Uh, you cannot ignore, nobody's, you know, it's like saying, go find my phone number in the yellow pages. Nobody is looking you up, um, you know, in, in a directory. Um, it's hard. Uh, people are, are finding their sources on, on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. So well, and I think, you know, part of it is even for those who don't <clears throat> like to post, they think social media is not my thing. I'll be frank to say it's not my thing. I really actually don't enjoy posting because it feels like a nuisance. But I'm often reminded actually by two folks who help run the social media committee for our section, um, Jeff Zeno and Olivier Andre. They say, if you don't share with people what you're doing, they will not know. Um, and it's a good reminder, right? We all do so much, but how many people out there know what we're doing, um, not as a means only to tell people what we're doing, but to get them involved in what we're doing, right? And so I think it's just a good reminder always, don't be bashful about putting out there, whether it's advertising, um, a program that you're doing or a program that you're a part of, um, like we'll be doing for the Mediation Institute. Um, but after the fact also, people want to see photos out there uh, if they weren't able to attend the event. Um, so. Susan, I realized we're coming upon time, and so I wanted to give you a platform to say any sort of summation words uh, we can leave our viewers with, listeners with. You know, I just, I do encourage um, all of our colleagues out there listening to consider an online platform. It has made an incredible difference in my practice and very honestly, my life, um, the convenience of it, and really the part that I have enjoyed the most is that I'm now able to work with people truly all around the world. I have a client in Australia, Australia that I'll be talking to later today. I meet with people across Europe. I, you know, I, it has expanded my world, certainly my client base. So that's always a positive, but it's expanded my world in many, many ways. Um, I'm going to be talking to a mediator in Morocco later on today as well. You know, it has been something by getting into the online platform it has changed my world and my practice. So I truly encourage um, practitioners to consider it. And if, you know, the podcast, I have to tell you all, has been a great deal of fun. So if you want to brand yourself as an expert in your niche area, um, I, I suggest considering doing a podcast or a YouTube channel or something like that. Um, it's really been an incredible boon um, since we started it. Thanks so much, Susan. Well, to our listeners, ODR, Online Dispute Resolution, is no longer the wave of the future. We are in it. It is here and now. Thanks to Susan for joining us today and to our listeners. Um, and until the next installment of Resolutions, I'm Rekha Rangachari, here with Susan Guthrie. Thanks very much, everyone, and goodbye. <laughs>